This is David's Book Talk, bringing authors and book lovers together in a unique way since 2009. Visit us at davidsbooktalk.com and join the conversation at facebook.com slash davidsbooktalk. But first, pull up a chair, relax, and enjoy today's episode. Here's your host, David English. Hello and welcome to David's Book Talk. And today we have probably the biggest author I've ever had on this show. I can't think of anybody bigger. Dean Koontz, and I can't believe I'm even saying his name because I've been a fan for so many years. I don't even know how many years it's been. <laughs> he's a New York Times bestselling author many, 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 many times over. And he's with us right now. Hello. Hi. It is, I can't tell you how much of a pleasure it is to talk to you because you're so much a part of my life. Your books, I should say, are so much a part of my life that I, I feel... I feel like I'm in the presence of a king or something, you know. Well, I'm. I'm. Uh, I, I have the potential to be a despot, but I don't know uh, anybody who offered me a kingship anyway. <laughs> there you go. But when when an author's so much a part of your life, and you've read so many, and I've I've lost count of how many books of yours I've read. It's 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 at least fifty, if not a lot more. I don't even know how many you've written. I've heard as many as 140. Is what one is this after death? This is the new one. Uh, now, in, in that, I don't think there's 140, but uh, that, and that includes things like little some children's books and picture books and things like that. Uh, as for the novels, I I just stopped counting. Uh, I, I get up every morning. I come to this keyboard. I love what I do. So uh, one of the great things in my life is that the thing I love to do and enjoy doing is also the thing that I can make a living with. And boy, is that a rare thing in life. You're telling me, God, yes, that's just unbelievable. And the fact that we, that people have gotten so much enjoyment out of your books. I mean, I was looking yesterday online about all the discussions that, what's your favorite Dean Koontz book? What, I mean, everybody talks about Watchers, and Watchers, of course, was, was a masterpiece as far as I'm concerned. But there's so many that I remember. I remember False Memory so well. And lightning and and oh, hideaway and I mean the list goes on and on and on. We have so many that we love, and now here's this new one, After Death, which goes on sale tomorrow, July 18th. Do you get as excited about each book that comes out? You know, you would think after all this time that I wouldn't, uh, but I, I, it's always exciting. I I think one thing that changes is over the years you're used to books coming out. Uh, it would be disappointing to me if one of them was rejected. Uh, but the thing that I get most excited about is simply the writing itself. Uh, when something's going well, uh, or I, I uh, finish with the book and about to start another and then a better idea hit me, hits me, that's what I get excited about. I still have so much enjoyment out of doing this that it, uh, it I have to say surprises me. Uh, it never occurred to me when I started all those years ago that I could go and half a century later, I would be having as much fun at this as I had when I was uh, struggling to find out how to get published. 
you just seem the most brilliant human being. I mean, just from reading your books, your your knowledge of words, you, the way you the way you you write sentences. I mean, it's just it speaks. It literally speaks to me like poetry. It's like lyrical to me. Is it meant to be that way? I mean, is that is that how you are? Is that how you see yourself? Well, I I, I don't know how well I succeed at what I do sometimes when uh, compared to what I set out to try to achieve. I, I have always had a great self-doubt, uh, but I love the English language. I think it's potentially the most beautiful language in the world, and it, uh, it offers us infinite possibilities of expression. So when I'm sitting here, one of the things I love the most is to think how to say something that I've not said it before, how to describe a sky, a tree, a forest, a face. Uh, that I have not described in that way before. And uh, it can be kind of daunting because I've been doing this a long time. And then, lo and behold, you're sitting and doing it and the, the options of ways to describe things, the images come into your head and you think, oh, I don't think I've ever said anything quite like that before. And that, I take a lot of joy in that. Uh, I have a lot of pleasure in that. Uh, I'm a fan of a lot of poets, and I think that probably has rubbed out off on me over the years. I should say happy birthday to you. I think a week ago you had a birthday. Yes, I did. We won't we won't name it. We won't say any numbers or anything. We're not going to put numbers out. <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I, just, I, I wanted to say happy birthday to you, and I see you like T.S. Eliot. T.S. Eliot seems to be one of your favorite. What is it about T.S. Eliot's poets, poetry, poets, uh, poems, I should say? I think what fascinates me the most is how apparently difficult uh, the, the work is, especially things like Ash Wednesday or, uh, well, uh, the, uh, the Four Quartets. Uh, and on first reading ago, what the hell? with the way he expresses things, with the use of language, with the uh, uh, just the whole meter of the prose and everything, well, it's poetry, but uh, it's, uh, you, you get to a point after you find yourself compelled to read it over and over again, where it begins to clarify, and what looked incredibly complex and, and difficult to understand turns out to be not difficult to understand at all. And that, I think, is what drew me to become so fascinated with his work, uh, that uh, if you give it patience and everything, it, it expresses to you things you believe yourself about life uh, in a way you would have not thought to express them, and that it somehow deepens the meaning of them uh, by being forced to contemplate the way he puts it. Uh, other poets I like because they're absolutely straight in your face and uh, not difficult to understand at all. Uh, but in his case, it's there's something about the way he expresses things that I find fascinating and, and interesting. And not everybody who has any interest in poetry uh, likes different people, but uh, he's probably my favorite. And a lot of the chapter names are named after, are, are parts of his poetry in some way. Yeah, uh, the, many of the chapter headings in the uh, After Death are, uh, come out of poetry, and at the end of the book I thought, well, it might be fun if, for some readers to uh, 
know that. So we added a note at the end of the book what those those chapter titles that do come out of poetry and what what they're from. Uh, just an odd thing that uh, I get interested in that kind of thing. So I thought some people might be. Now I should tell you that the publisher of this is Thomas and Mercer. That's part of Amazon, I think. Right? You 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 signed a deal with Amazon. Is what I read online. Is that uh, true? Yeah, I, uh, I I was becoming disillusioned with New York publishing, and uh, uh, I did, I've, I've always had my struggles with it. Uh, almost everything I ever wanted to do that was different meant with met with resistance, and you at some point just get exhausted with it and say, I'm, there must be some place where somebody would say, okay, you've been doing this a long time, and maybe what you do often not what we've seen before. Uh, nevertheless, you've built an audience, so let's have some trust in that. And I just got kind of burnt out, and I said, look, I hadn't had agents for 14 years because I'd had wow. some bad ones, so I represented myself with an attorney. And one day, I just said, well, the business is changing. i got to get agents. And I lucked well. They were recommended by my attorney. And uh, I, I found I liked them very much, and I trusted them, which was something I'd lost, was trust in other agents. And uh, uh, so I said to them, look, I, I want to pay Random House back for the uh, last two books that I owe them because I, I just don't think what I'm doing, and I'd like to find some place that does. And I've done these stories uh, in a series called Nameless for Amazon Original yes. Stories, mm -hmm. and they had done very well for them. And uh, so my agent said, why don't we go to Amazon as one of the publishers we seek a new deal with and give them an opportunity? And I thought, oh, I don't know about that, because in general publishing, there's a big hostility to Amazon. Uh, Amazon sells 60% of all books sold in the United States. And a lot of booksellers don't like that, and a lot of uh, publishers don't like that. And bestseller lists will not count sales of Thomas and Mercer or an imprint that, ben, or that, that Amazon itself owns. And uh, as a consequence, you give up certain things. But I was at the point in my career that none of that mattered so much as reaching people with what I do and working with people who would understand it. And uh, so, and a lot of this has to do with cross-genre, with uh, the quality of prose, which I've always been told is that you've got to write down to the audience. Uh, I, I've always felt New York Publishing underestimates most of their readers, and I never understood why. So I, I said to my agents, well, I don't know, but okay, let's let's put Thomas and Mercer in the mix. And we had eight uh, publishers making offers. All were very oh, similar. And the deciding factor turned out to be, we said, I would like to see a marketing plan with every offer. So I understand that they understand what kind of audience we could have, not just on size, but who the readership is and that kind of thing. And of the seven New York publishers, uh, one gave no marketing plan, and all the rest gave either, either one or two pages, which I wouldn't even call the marketing plan. Uh, but uh, Thomas and Mercer gave me 40-page marketing plan. 
my and God. <laughs> I looked at that and said, okay, uh, put up or shut up. Let's, uh, let's say this matters. Let's see how this goes. It has been the, one of the best things I've ever done in my life. Uh, maybe after marrying my wife, the next best thing. Uh, because I suddenly found myself working with young, a lot of younger people in editorial publishing roles that you don't see in New York, because in New York, people stay in those positions into their 70s, and by the time younger people get a chance at them, they're not younger anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it, that alone was different, but also I've now, I'm in my second five-book deal with them. Uh, they've published, I think this is the sixth book, and I've, they have two more I've written, delivered. I've got another third on, uh, on the second contract. Uh, and to this point, nobody's ever said, I don't think this is the way to tell this story. I, I don't understand why you, you're doing this. You have to reduce the you have to use a smaller vocabulary which you used to hear all the time out of former previous publishers uh, and it's just been a different universe and it's been one at my age that's something i've been looking for almost forever so uh, i'm i'm happy i'm creative more creative i think uh, and at my age and i don't mind saying i'm 78 at my age, not a lot of people are still uh, doing it and happy about doing it, and uh, and here I am. Uh, and as good as it as as you are, I mean, you're a powerhouse. I mean, you've had such an impact on my life as far as reading. I mean, I can remember just all of your books, reading your books, and how much I enjoyed them, and the enjoyment I've gotten out of them. I could never express it totally to you, and. It, 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 it's just meant so much to me. And to hear your voice, it just brings back all the memories of all the books that I've read and, and enjoyed. Well, it's, uh, I enjoy writing them, and I think it's, it's that joy in storytelling and, and writing that probably uh, readers so relate to. Uh, do you ever have writer's block? I mean, do you ever have a point where you can't write or, or, you've, or you, you don't know what to write next? Uh, I've never had writer's block. I, I have those days I don't get as much out as I would like to. I spend 10 hours at the keyboard and I manage to produce three quarters of a page. I would like to have produced two or three pages anyway. Uh, but I don't ever hit absolute block. And I think the reason is, I, I tell young writers, and at my age everybody is a young writer, I say, all writer's block comes from the same thing, whether you recognize it or not, it's self-doubt. And I have more self-doubt than any writer I've ever known. Really? Uh, oh. when, and I, I've never been able to lose it. Um, when I started a book, I, I found, finally found how to deal with it, and it was when I found how to deal with it is when I started having success. I don't move on from page one until I think it's perfect or as perfect as I can make it with what talent God gave me. And that might mean 10 drafts of some pages. It might mean 20 drafts of some pages. And I just work on the page and refine the language and tighten it all up and make it as vivid as so you can see the images in your head. When that page, I feel the self-doubt go away. 
then I move on to the next page. And that's how I work my way through a novel. At the end of a chapter, I, uh, I print it out two or three times in pencil because you see things on a printout you don't see on the screen. And I gradually work through the book. Uh, when I'm done, I'm done. I don't do uh, a quick draft and then another draft and then another draft. I do all my drafts page by page. And as a consequence, the self-doubt is there renewed every time I go to the next page. But I know how I work and that I, that will beat the self-doubt back. And at the end of the book, I've, I'm confident about it. And uh, it also has the benefit that I don't get what I used to get before I worked that way. Now we're going back before very early days uh, mm -hmm. where editorial notes would be 20 pages long. Now they're two pages. Uh, and they have been that way for a long time. And that's a factor of the editor realizing what work you've put into this and, and that you've thought, thought it through more carefully perhaps than is often the case. Uh, so there are advantages too because I have learned that I don't collaborate well. So I, I always want to deliver a book that uh, people can't find a serious problem with because that could lead to collaboration. And when I was in grade school even, teachers told my parents this does not work well with others. <laughs> so. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, you're amazing. I, I don't even... I, I, I feel I'm just in awe of you. I really am. And it sounds it sounds like you, I'm just saying that, but I absolutely mean it. I mean, this new book, After Death, we should talk more about that. Michael Mace. Now, he's a, a very interesting character because he actually died at one point. <laughs> it's, I've been reading about the singularity uh, for God, 20 years or longer. Uh, people like Ray Kurzweil, who's, who's a brilliant man, and others in definitions of the singularity, capital S, are, they're, they're slightly different ones, but basically it boils down to the belief that technology is advancing so rapidly that the time is coming within our lives, uh, even maybe by uh, 2030, when man and machine, human and machine, will meld in ways that will revolutionize the, the world and, and the human lifespan, that we will live far, far longer, that we will get far more intelligent by linking with computers. That I've even seen estimations that when the singularity occurs and human and machine mesh, uh, that we will, our intelligence will leap forward to a hundred times what it is now, or a thousand times. And that's when I started reading that long enough, I said, you know what? There's a huge element of fantasy in this. Uh, we're human. Uh, we're incapable of being a thousand times smarter. The synapses in the human brain can't handle it. Uh, uh, we need heads four times larger than the one we have. And uh, it's. Uh, uh, I started to think then, okay, what if there was some place they were working on this, trying to get to the singularity, trying to use nanotechnology or, or biological technology uh, that would encourage that melding of nanomachine, what might actually be something that would happen that we could benefit? We're not going to become superheroes with superpowers, and we're not going to become a thousand times smarter, and we're not going to become immortal. Uh, but what might 
this book came from. Uh, what happens to Michael Mays, the ability he gains, he, he still can be killed. Uh, he isn't going to get yet another life if he dies in the second one. Uh, but the thing that happens to him does give him quite an advantage. And, and, and it's something I think we can find realistic that isn't a superhero sort of thing. And you can actually believe this might happen. And that's when I got excited about writing the book and playing it out, seeing how he would cope with this and how he would use it and to what purpose. And, uh, and that's where that novel comes. So often, you know, you just don't know where the idea came from. Sometimes you do. In this case, I happen to know. Some people, some authors say they dream about ideas. I know Dennis Lehane said he dreamt all of Shutter Island. And, you know, you, it's fascinating where everybody gets their ideas from, where all these different authors get their ideas from. And, you know, it, I think it's fascinating that you say you're not even quite sure where you get it from. It just, it's there. And you start writing it. And you, you, you know you can make a story around it. I think I, uh, the, probably the biggest example of that, I, I've had, uh, two novels that came to me in dreams, uh, and that's all. And uh, people tend to think that's the primary source of their ideas, but unfortunately, they don't generally come that way, uh, which would be probably too easy. But uh, but the one that is the most mysterious to me was Odd Thomas. Uh, I was writing a novel called The Face, and I was oh, yeah. partway through it. It's a very long novel, and I. Until I came the line, my name is Odd Thomas, I lead an unusual life. And I stopped that because it was nothing I was writing, it just was this other thought. And I stopped and I thought, what the hell does that mean? Uh, it, it has nothing to do with what's going on here. But the name was intriguing, and I started to write down, I thought, don't lose this. I started to write it. Next thing I knew, I was for the first and last time ever in my career writing longhand. And I I keep a yellow legal lined legal tablet beside me just to make notes. Don't forget this. Don't forget that. And suddenly I was actually writing out the first chapter of uh, uh, on Thomas. And I, I wrote and wrote and wrote. I, I felt, I think, 30-some pages of a uh, handwritten first chapter. And nothing like that had ever happened before. And as I looked at it, I thought, this is really something. Uh, I, I've got to put this aside. It probably will not look so good when I come back to it after finishing the phase. But when I came back to it, I think I made two or three minor changes. I adjusted the first line. And I already had my first chapter. Where that came from, I will never know. There are moments, it seems to me, you're not the creator, you're a conduit. <laughs> Somebody else is sending it through you. That sounds mystical, but it, it, uh, in that case, I, it's completely otherwise inexplicable to me. And then I ended up writing eight books with that character. So. Amazing. You, have, you just seem to have an infinite imagination. And it's it's amazing to hear it, and, and because you never you never seem to run out of ideas, or even seem to worry that you're going to run out of ideas. I sometimes have worried that that I would, and uh, then I uh, recently was uh, uh, this goes back a 
couple of books. I was working on a book that uh, I, it's not going to be called this. It was called The Huntress, but we're all agreed that it, it needs a new title. And uh, I was working on it, and I kind of at some point thought, am I taking, is this going the right direction? Is this something slipping here? And I stopped and thought, I, I have to read it. I probably had two-thirds of the manuscript. And I went back and uh, said, put it aside for a couple of days, go back and read it. Uh, and then I thought, I went back and read it, and I thought, I'm going to have to think about this a little bit. And that generally doesn't happen. I usually think about it as I'm writing the book. I, I don't get stumped. Uh, it wasn't stumped exactly. I just felt there are ways this can go, and I better not go the wrong way. And so I put it aside, and I thought, well, I'll start something else. I never do that. I finish a book before I start the next one. And I, I sat for a minute and thought, my God, I usually have two ideas that I'm eager to get to, and I, at the moment, don't have any. But I have this drawer of ideas that over the years I didn't have time to get to, and I I write out the idea for you know, maybe a page and I throw it in this drawer and figure someday I'll go and I'll need this, but I never have needed it. I, I don't have many ideas in there, but maybe 50, 60. And so uh, I thought, well, maybe it's the time for that drawer. And as I was turning to the drawer, I thought of this, uh, this idea came into my head. Uh, and. Uh, it came this way. Uh, I thought I, I had seen somebody say about somebody else, uh, he's too nice for his own good. And I thought, what a bizarre thing to say. Niceness is a, not a virtue. Uh, and uh, then I started thinking, yeah, look around at the world we're making for ourselves. Niceness appears not to be a virtue anymore. <laughs> and... Uh, and this idea came to me, what about a character who his life starts to fall apart and his problem is he's just too damn nice to be <laughs> And uh, it struck me as funny and I ended up turning to the computer and I write, wrote this entire novel which comes out in January and the title it finally got was The Bad Weather Friend. And it's mm. about this, this guy who uh, is very affable, likable, but in the world we're living in that is, has gone beyond dog-eat-dog. Dog. The question rises sometimes, is there really room for people who are this nice and this decent, or are they just going to be devoured by the system? And, and the answer I came up with had me laughing out loud all the way through the novel. And, I, uh, and this figure comes into his life who uh, starts changing his life for him. I won't go any further to say who or why, but it's it almost it's semi supernatural but but very down to earth in its way. And uh, and this person says, you know, most of the people you're who are your friends are fair weather friends. That's when they'll be your friend. When things go wrong like they're going wrong, they don't show up, but I'm your bad weather friend. And uh, I I finished the book and I thought this is a really funny novel. Is it too funny? Uh, it's suspenseful and all that, but I sent it in anyway to the folks at Thomas 
Mercer, Mercer. And they came back and said, more of this. <laughs> Write us another one like this. And my agents were very happy with it also. So I went back and finished The Hunters, and I gave it to them. But now I'm writing a, a novel that I'm also laughing out loud at. So they come to you, and you don't just always know why. And sometimes you do. But in that case, it was from that phrase and that thought. And you write very evil characters, <laughs> especially in After Death. There's some really, there's a really evil man in this book, and, and yet he's fun to he's fun to read about. Uh, one of the things I try to do when I'm writing films, I I know I can write some really bad people. I've known some in my life, and uh, uh, I kind of know what makes. A sociopath take. My own father was ultimately diagnosed as sociopathic when he ended up in a psych ward twice. Wow. Uh, and so, uh, but I, one thing that bothers me as a reader are those books that kind of glamorize evil. And I never want to do that. I, I want to say, is this a bad guy? You shouldn't want to be like him. You shouldn't find anything about this guy glamorous or romantic, but sometimes evil can be a very glamorous edge to it. And one way I've found to get done with that, make sure that the reader doesn't come away with that feeling, is to make the villain unaware that he's comic. Uh, yeah, he's scary as hell, he's dangerous as hell, he's bad as hell, but he's a fool. And that is, I do believe that evil is a fool's game. It works in the short run, but never in the long run. And so the, the federal agent in this, uh, Caliphus, is, uh, he's pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> and he kind of spooked me at times, but at the same time, he's absurd. And uh, I sort of had fun writing him that way. And it's fun, it's, uh, and you come up with them, the most craziest name, Duran Caliphus. I mean, it's like, wow, where did you? Want, I wonder, you know, how does that come out of his brain as a name? I mean, wh how do you know the perfect name to name somebody? Does it sometimes the name comes to you? Uh, uh, this name happens to be, and it's nothing anyone needs to know, but it's the name of the. Uh, the high priest who told uh, uh, Christ's executioner to go ahead and execute him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so that, was, that, that seems to be a good source for the name of a particularly evil sociopath uh, who, in one point, is delighted to kill somebody in his life that's very close to him and won't go further. Um, and uh, that, sometimes I try to get the name that uh, you think, oh, it's, it's deep down in there that nobody will know where it comes from. But sometimes it resonates in subconscious ways with, with people. They're not all that obscure. Some of them are not obscure at all. Um, uh, for instance, uh, the lead character in... Uh, in uh, the bad weather friend is uh, Benny Catspaw. <laughs> and, a, and a Catspaw, anybody can look up in the dictionary, and the name sort of fits him and it's fun. Uh, and he's kind of sweet and hapless, uh, so uh, people manipulate him. But, uh, but you, uh, you never seem to have times where 
writing is work for you. It's just, I mean, the way you describe it, it sounds like it's always fun. It's never, you never get up in the morning and say, oh, I have to write. You, you, it's like you, you go to the desk and you're, you're glad to get there. You're glad to start writing. Is it always like that? Yeah, it, it is always like that. And uh, that doesn't mean it's always easy. Uh, yeah, no. You know, there are, there are times when you want to start smashing your head against the desktop. But, uh, oh, don't do that because we need more from you. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, somebody who is a, a, a force in my uh, youth as a reader was Ray Bradbury. And uh, uh, Ray Bradbury was an ebullient guy. Uh, he just loved life and he loved writing. And he would. He, he never had a moment in his writing life uh, uh, where he said, oh, God, I wish I didn't have to do this. Uh, and I think that's why his writing always was fun to read. That's why it always had that light touch about it, even when the stories were dark. And uh, uh, so I'm fortunate in that way that uh, I, I come to it. It's... It's a challenge, but the challenge is part of the fun. And when you start trying to do something that you've never done before, and you think, I don't think I can do this, that actually motivates you in a way that makes all of the writing more fun to see, am I going to fall flat on my face, or am I going to pull this off? So you're constantly having challenges. Yeah. And, and that, yeah, that's got to be. And if it's just, like you said, it's it's fearful, and yet you want to do it at the same time. If you feel like it's, you have to do it. I've got to try this. Yeah, I I've always felt bad for writers, and some of whom I I've loved their work, who write a series character that becomes so popular that the publisher wants nothing else, <laughs> uh, and who find themselves writing the same sort of character story over and over again. Um, I, I think that that would drive me crazy if I had to do something like that uh, in order to keep selling. Uh, but then there are some writers like Dick Francis. He had different characters with different names, but they were all the same character. <laughs> and, uh, and I loved those books. So maybe Dick Francis didn't Ash his head against the desk. Maybe he actually enjoyed having that familiarity each time. Right. But for me, it doesn't work. I, I I must tell you though, I really miss Jane Hawk. I really love that series. I, I miss Jane too. I uh, that was. Was Jane uh, be coming back at all? Probably not, uh, because oh. I was amazed I got five books out of her. Uh, but uh, I will say I. Problem is the Jane Hawk books are locked up at Random House. So if they start doing Jane Hawk books somewhere else, uh, you can't get a coordinated publishing effort. To Did they sell well at Random House? When they, were they sold well, yeah. I don't think they understood them there. <laughs> oh, I did. I loved every one of them. Uh, you know, it's strange to say uh, because if you would talk to any of the publishers I dealt with in the Random House world, uh, they would they were women. I, I liked working with them, and they would certainly have considered themselves feminists, but I don't think they quite thought Jane was a character who could exist, that a woman wouldn't have been this competent in these kind of ways. Uh, I do know I certainly had to answer questions that were of that type, 
And I did have to say, it came up, uh, oh, uh, I couldn't believe she could handle a, a, a heavy-duty firearm that way. And I, uh, it, it would be, and they would discuss it, they know nothing about guns. Nobody almost in the industry does. <laughs> and they would say, but I asked somebody, the guns, and said, oh, I don't think a woman could handle that. And I said, okay, come on out here. The next time you're out here, I will call up a friend who spent 25 years in the FBI. She's a woman. She is about five foot four. Uh, she weighs about 120 pounds. Uh, she can shoot that same handgun and, and, and place the rounds right in the center of the body trunk. Uh, and we'll go and you can watch her do it. But what astounded me was the, the idea from people who call themselves feminists, who nevertheless were limiting what they thought was something natural a woman could do. Mm. And I've never thought that way because I've, I've been lucky to know strong women all my life. Uh, and, and Jane was just what I knew women could do, especially when enough was at stake. And in those Jane books, you know, her, her child is always at stake. And uh, it comes down to that in the end. So. What a... What a fascinating five books that was, though. I mean, for me, I couldn't wait for the next one. I would go online just to find out if I could figure out what, what the title of the next one was going to be. I, I so enjoyed them. I was actually supposed to write uh, seven of those. That's what I had heard, but I, and that's why I was a little confused when five came out and they said it was the end. I thought, well, wait a minute, where are the other two? <laughs> I, it was just that I was getting so, so dissatisfied with uh, the... I, I, my editor, I loved, but my editor wasn't the final word always oh. uh, in that house, and I, I was just getting frustrated with uh, some of the higher uh, echelons, and and I, th I thought I love Jane, I want to write more about her, but I, I don't, I just don't want to write seven books. I want to bring this to a conclusion in the fifth, and it worked out well in the fifth. Uh, I don't, I don't think it ever got the same story. There was always something worse happening. All right. But, oh, just incredible! Just an incredible series, and I'll, I'll always miss her. And it's nice to know you do too, because yeah. <laughs> you're the author. Yeah. We've got renewed film interest in it. I, whether something will happen, I don't know. It has been optioned twice, and in both cases, they couldn't figure out how to handle her. Uh, and it was amazing to look at. In one case, the screenwriter got did an excellent job on the first one. These were both toward television series, but I don't get excited about screenplays because I've seen so many bad ones. Do you think they had any actress in mind to play Jane? Uh, it, I don't know that they did. Nobody ever said to me, anybody in, in line with her. Uh, but uh, I had some in my own head. I had somebody in mind. But I had this writer, uh, Matthew Graham was his name, he's British, I believe. He, he wrote a fabulous screenplay. Uh, it, was, I, it knocked me out. And, uh, and in the, he, I know he was highly disappointed. I praise the screenplay. Came back. They decided, no, we can't make that. The issue of suicide is too 
simple. <laughs> oh no. That's, uh, yeah. Well, look what's on. Look what's on streaming now. There's everything. I mean, yeah. a lot more. <laughs> there's. A, I mean, anything you can even imagine is on streaming now. <laughs> my my ideal for if you want to know who my ideal was to play Jane Hawk was Emily Blunt. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, of course, by the time this effort would get made, Emily Blunt would be too old. But, but she is the most amazing actress and physical in a way that uh, you would believe her as Jane. So. Right. I want to ask you about the char your characters. A lot of times when I read your books, I find that a lot of them are sort of paranoid about the police. They're kind of police wary a lot and that's that theme send, tends to run through your books is that intentional i think what it is is that's, that's the same thing that uh, hitchcock had uh hitchcock wasn't anti-police but he he had a high suspicion of authority <laughs> and he used to talk about that in, in, is that the way you are or is it just the way your characters are i think there's a lot of that in me and i think it comes from uh, in fact, I, I almost know what it comes from. I'll tell you a, a little story going back to when the first book I ever wrote, and I'd written quite a number before that, but the first book that got any publicity to speak of was Watchers. Oh, and uh, yes. as that book was uh, on its way to coming out, uh, uh, they read it at People magazine, and they wanted to do an article, and this was in the days when they actually did substantive articles in People. They wrote 500 little pieces in one magazine. And, and they sent a reporter, and, it, and I liked her reporter. She did a, a nice job. And then they sent a photographer who was supposed to come for a day, but he was there for two and a half days. His name was Jim McHugh, and he was a real nice guy. And he came, and, and a good photographer, and we took photos for a couple of hours. And he said, let's take a break. Uh, uh, let's just sit down and uh, have a soda and talk. And, uh, and uh, I said, fine. I did, I'd never been photographed before for publication. So I didn't know there was anything different about this. Uh, and we sat down and we chatted for a couple of minutes and he said, I don't know this about you. Uh, I, I don't know anything about you, actually. Uh, he said, but I'm going to tell you something about your life. And I thought, what is this? And he said, uh, either one or both of your parents were alcoholics. And either one or both of your parents were violent. And I looked at him, and I had never publicly spoken about this, ever. And my dad was a violent alcoholic, and my mother was a lovely person, but under his thumb, and, and therefore uh, uh, couldn't change anything meaningful about our lives. And I said to Jim McHugh, how the hell do you know that? And he said, because you have all the behavioral traits of an adult child of an alcoholic. And he said, I know this because that was my life. And I went through a program to, uh, for adult children of alcoholics. And it was eye-opening to me. He walked me, he, I said, well, tell me what those signs are. 
And he said, well, one thing is, you, were, you couldn't be nicer to the way you're treating me. But from the moment I walked through the door, you've tried to manage every shot I take. You do it in subtle ways, but you want to be in charge of this. And that's because as a child, you never were in charge of anything. You had no control of your life. And at some point you said, when I grow up, I am not gonna be, ever be out of control of my life. And I said, my God, that that's true. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it, it remains one of the most amazing conversations I ever had. So it didn't make you angry that he was pointing no, that out to you? He was totally correct. <laughs> <laughs> he must have thought, oh my, he's been watching me all my life. We're, we're around the corner somewhere. He walked through these things, these character traits, and he said, I'll bet that you don't do this and you don't do that. You don't fly. And I said, I flew a few times in my early career, but I stopped after I was in a really bad turbulence. And, uh, and he said, do you know why you don't fly? And I said, I've given a lot of thought because I know flying is safe. I mean, it's safer than getting in a car. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he said, you don't fly because you have to trust your life to a stranger in a very obvious way. And every stranger is your father to you. So the pilot is potentially what your father was. Not that he drinks, but that he's the kind of person that would damage you or destroy your life, and therefore you won't put your life in his hands. And that's exactly what I had arrived at uh, without quite realizing it. So uh, uh, I didn't know we were gonna get this intense into all that, but uh, I think then that leads to not always having the trust and authority you wish you would have, because the people in your life when you were growing up were not there for you, and therefore that stays. It doesn't go away. Do you think do you think you reveal things about yourself in your writing that you don't realize you're revealing about yourself? I used to say no, and then as time passed, uh, my wife was the first. She said to me one day, do you realize that almost everything, every discovery you make about life, and everything of any importance happens ends up being in the book you write next and i said well i don't think that's true and then she started counting off the things and it was kind of oh okay i guess that's true yeah so you end up revealing things about yourself uh, uh, although i'm not a serial killer although i have written about a few <laughs> i have to ask you now i hope i don't offend you by asking you this question but because I'm sure you've been asked this question many times, but I've never heard the answer to it. Why did you not finish the Fear Nothing series? Oh, that's a whole story in its own. It's more about publishing than anything else. It wasn't that you didn't want to finish it. I wanted very much to finish it. Uh, this is the way it went. I, I had been at Putnam for, through all the early success, uh, but I was having great struggles there because the publisher just hated the cross-genre books. And every book, that's what I was doing, and that's what was succeeding. But we would fight about things. And when I had a first number one, which was midnight, she called me up, you learn about being number one 10 days before because they print the book review section ahead of the newspaper because uh, it goes to subscribers. Right. And 
said, but there's one thing you have to immediately understand. This is a fluke. It'll never happen to you again because you don't write the kind of books that can go to number one. Oh, that's bullshit. Good heavens. And we had four more number ones. And every time we hit number one, she told me the same thing. That's Uh, crazy. And so I said, well, I've got so many experiences like that in publishing. So I thought, okay, I have to get out of here. And I have to get somewhere where they think this could happen again. And I went to Knopf because Sonny Mehta was a legendary. Oh, there's a name I know, yeah. And he had been sort of indirectly courting me uh, for quite some time. And uh, my, I won't go how I ended up, but kind of, but I ended up there. And, and I loved Sonny as a person. Uh, but the way Sonny worked as an editor is he gave the book, at least with me, to, and I had to figure this out on my own. He would give it to probably six people. And they'd all read it and give notes, and then the, all the notes would be mixed with Sonny's, and they would come to you uh, as if they were all Sonny's notes. And it was very strange because many of the notes would conflict with one another. And uh, there were just things going on that I thought, I, I've made a mistake. I know Knopf is the most prestigious publisher and everything else, but I can't work this way. I have to work where I know this is coming from one mind, and I know the person I'm working with, uh, how far they'll go uh, in, you know, negotiations about things. I'm not talking about it. I'm talking about when you each have a strong opinion about something in the book, how do you reach a middle ground? Or do you just, how can you say no? And all those questions that come up. So we had to go somewhere else after three books, and we went to Bantam. And the first book I delivered to Bantam was Fear Nothing. And the book was received well, but I could tell there was a kind of surprise about certain aspects of it. Uh, And then when I delivered Seize the Night, the second one, there was trouble. Uh, The publisher did not relate to these characters, which I had not understood in the first one, and I did understand in the second. And the thing he didn't relate to about it was the humor. Uh, And I thought I had gotten past that with publishers because we were having a lot of success with books like Lightning and so forth that had humor embedded inside the suspense story. And, uh, but we had a go-around that lasted probably six weeks in which he wanted major changes to the end that I thought would sort of destroy the book. (laughs) And I wouldn't do them. I would make tiny adjustments, small. And it got very clear that if the next book I delivered was the third book in this series, we were done. We would not be working together anymore. And I thought, okay, I don't want to have to change publishers yet again. That just isn't going to look right. And I liked this guy as a a person. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, what if I gave you a couple of novels uh, that aren't in the series, and then I give you the third? So that was our agreement. Uh, as 
how I wrote false memory and then from the corner of his eye. And then at that point, uh, there were, uh, we were going into other problems. I'm talking sod of school there, but I don't care anymore. I'm 78. <laughs> <laughs> And False Memories, an all-time classic. I mean, that book is an amazing book. Well, they, I did that from the corner of his eye. And from the corner of his eye, uh, it actually, we'd gotten, it started a little somewhat before that. But we were getting better and better reviews and more reviews and sometimes more review, reviews in places that are considered literary. And when I, from the corner of his eye, really did that a lot of places. And we got some reviews that really took the book very seriously. And I discovered that this kind of frightened the publisher. And there was a line that my editor for the paperback reprint, uh, she identified it as soon as it appeared, the hardcover appeared, and she took this review, it was in the Boston Herald, and uh, yet, uh, called the book a literary miracle. And she identified it, and she tagged it to the publisher and said, we're going to use this in advertising, and it needs to go on the cover of the paperbacks. Boston Globe, it's a famous critic, it's, uh, and it's a rave review of a type that isn't just what a great story. It understands what the novel's trying to do. And he said, we can never use that to promote the book. Uh, we have to sell it to the great unwashed. Uh, there aren't enough people. If people think it's, it's literary, they won't buy it. And that's what I've encountered so much in New York publishing, a kind of disdain for a lot of the readership out there. And I knew from my reader mail that the audience is very, it's, it's very much more articulate and willing to be stretched and looking for something new uh, than anyone in, in New York publishing seems to believe. So at that point, we were back to arguing again. And it came back to, okay, if I do, if I do the third book, this is over. It was over anyway, but uh, it took me a number of more books to finally realize it. And I think I still have books to deliver after Odd Thomas. Uh, but when I delivered Odd Thomas, the publisher disliked it so much he wouldn't talk to me about it. And uh, this is crazy. By that point, I realized I love Odd Thomas, and by God, I'm, I'm going to write, write more books with this character. So when the book went out, uh, the booksellers in advance proof, uh, the orders were, had, they jumped from where they had been before. And as the reviews started coming out, they were stellar. And, uh, and so he said, all right, I'll let you write more books about Odd Thomas. But between each one, you have to give me a book that isn't about Odd Thomas. So that sort of sealed the fate of of uh, the, the characters in uh, uh, Fear Nothing Sees the Night, because I wanted to write the Thomas ones. Then after I left 
Bantam, which eventually I ran the house, which I was at the Bantam imprint. Uh, I should have done it many years earlier, but uh, that's where that self-doubt and all of that comes in. Uh, and so at that point, I, I said, okay, now I'm somewhere where they would do the third book. But the problem is, Random House owns the first two, and, uh, and relations there were not something where you could say, could I buy those books back and have them over here? So maybe someday I'll get that third one written, but I don't expect my new publisher to have to publish a book where they can't have the first two in the series. Right, exactly. Wow. That's something. And all this time I thought it was you not wanting to finish the series. <laughs> Wasn't I cruel to think that? <laughs> From the outside, I think my career looks like this wonderful, smooth arc that went ever upward, but it was it has never been easy until this current relationship. And it's always been a struggle. Do you think you've you've had the most success you've wanted? I mean, do you think you've gotten everything you've wanted? Success wise? Uh, you know, you would always like to reach more people. And right. it comes down to because you start writing because books changed my life. They showed me as a kid that not all families were as dysfunctional as mine. Right. And, and if you're in a dysfunctional family with no examples otherwise that you know, you kind of grow up thinking this is the way everybody is in, once the doors close in the house. And, uh, but books were where I could learn that no, this isn't how everybody lives. And, uh, and so you start writing, I think, out of wanting to touch lives the way yours was touched and changed. And uh, uh, so reaching as many people as possible is, is something you want to do. Financially, I could have stopped many years ago. That comes a point where you're not doing it anymore for the money because you've got what you need. Uh, but it's the love of doing it and hoping it might give somebody else the joy and the peace that some of the writers gave me. So, yeah, but I, I never got the promotion that I should have gotten, and uh, I, I didn't. I, I knew for years that I would go into a bookstore and I would see displays of some new writer everywhere in the store. There would be a, a display bin here, another one back here. Behind the cashiers would be a wall of the same book looking face out. But I could never get any promotion like that. And I was always told by publishers, oh, it's the bookstores that make that decision. And then pretty late in my relationship with Random House, I became friends with somebody who had been the head of sales for another publisher. And he told me, no, that isn't true. Uh, publishers determine which books they're going to push that way. Right. And the bookstores, uh, they work out a deal on that. And there was even a name for it. And I realized just, you don't get a lot of truth telling. In, uh, in life and uh, so here I am I'm getting truth telling from the current publisher I'm very happy with everything I'm working with and after this long haul everything is going smoothly <laughs> so we can expect a new book like you said there's one coming in January yeah that's the bad weather friend and then next July the one is coming that is I, these are two of my favorites ever I think 
a bad weather friend, and, uh, and then this book that we're still trying to determine the best title for. And then I'm working on one that I, I love. These three of my favorite things, a book called Going Home in the Dark. Uh, oh, I like that title. It is, uh, I'm having just great fun with it. Uh, it's comic as well as uh, suspenseful and scary. Does anybody besides the publishing people get to see the books before they come out? I mean, do you, do you show them to your wife? Do you show them to friends? Do you... I, I get uh, some advance-bound proofs uh, of my own. They'll give me probably more if I ask for them. And I share them with a couple of few friends and, and that sort of thing. Uh, uh, give me your address. I'll send you an advance copy of The Bad Weather Friend. Really? I don't have them yet, but I should have them in a few weeks. What, what's the best way for me to get you my address? Uh, if you can hold on while I get a pen. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if you can edit this while we have this big gap in the... <laughs> well, in the well, <laughs> well, if you just have to get a pen, that's fine. I mean, we're or, you, or you could send a digit, arrange this through Nicole or Beth. Oh, I'll, yeah, I'll send her an email. That's fine. Yeah, I can yeah. do that. Yeah, that would be great. I'm going to send your address. And well, I'm, I'm really looking forward. I, where can somebody, and somebody asked this online, and I wanted to ask you, where, where's the best place to get copies of your old paperbacks, of your old books? Uh, well, the old, old books, I, I have kept out of print for uh, oh, a long decade. So they're going to have to go to a used bookstore? And used somehow. I know you're friendly with Book Carnival. And I'm not sure they're in business anymore. They, they, the original owners died and it was sold. And I always do books for them, but this year nobody called me. And the little lady who bought the place, I think, is in her late 80s, so I'm getting suspicious. Um, and, uh, um, but, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, I've kept them, all the early because you don't want to read it. I, I spent a lot of books learning how to do, and right. they, they really aren't worth reading. But you have so many classic books, so many books that were so enjoyable, and and you continue to write enjoyable books. I mean, I loved After Death, I, and I can't remember any book of yours I didn't love. Well, you're, you're very nice. I, you know, um, no, I'm being honest. I cannot remember one that I haven't that I haven't. Would that bother you if somebody said that to you? Well, yes, because I disappointed them. Now you oh. get crank mail where they want to offend you, and that doesn't offend me. Uh, but if if somebody genuinely didn't like something, yeah, it's uh, I'm sorry for that. I, I'm still going to write what I want to write. Right. What I think, and you should. Yeah, <laughs> but. Uh, Fortunately, you know, I, all the years when I used to do book signings uh, and uh, when snail mail was still the thing and we'd get 10, 20,000 letters a year, uh, it was rare that anybody came up to you in the book signing and said, I hate your books and then spit on your shoes. Uh, they they come because they like them, so you get, uh, you get a... Uh, you don't get a cross section, so I hope there aren't a lot of people out there that, that don't like them. But. I, 
remember one time I got a letter from you. I had written to you, and I got a letter from you. I was all excited about the letter. And I opened it up, and it, <laughs> you had written in red pen, like drops of blood at the bottom of the letter. <laughs> I still remember this letter. And I, I thought, oh, that's so cool. You know, people would think, well, that's a little creepy. It's, it, but it wasn't. It was just something I, I thought, well, that's exactly what he would do. <laughs> but I found it very, very, it was very moving to me because it meant a lot. It, it, because you, and I think you had actually written out the letter too. It wasn't like a typed letter from a secretary. I think it was really typed out by you because it was signed at the bottom by you. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I always try to answer as many of my own letters as I can myself, especially, you know, sometimes if a teacher says, okay, class, everybody here, we're going to read this book, and everybody here is going to write the author a letter, I don't feel obligated to answer each student individually. Right. But, uh, and, and some letters are just, they just want to say, hi, I like it. But if, if the letter is interesting, and many of them are, then, uh, then you want to answer it. So you're never going to retire. <laughs> Well, you know, when I fall dead into the keyboard. Or, or <laughs> oh, don't do that. Please don't do that. I, I can't imagine the world without your books. I really can't. And it and I know that sounds really trite, but I mean it. I mean, we've never, I've never talked to you before today. People must think we probably know them, we're probably friends. I've never met you before or even spoken to you before. I've wanted to for many, many years, but so they can't even say that. <laughs> but I really feel a kinship with your books. And, you know, it, it's it's just that they've moved me and, and meant so much to me over the years. And, you know, I've gotten signed books from you and called stores to get signed books and gotten, you know, special editions of books. I mean, there, there's so much of a history I have with your books that I can't imagine not having that in my life. Well, I did a, an interview with a reporter from the Washington Post uh, uh, for a, a piece here. Several, I guess, I guess the piece came out in might have been May, uh, maybe June, and uh, she came out here for a day. And one of her questions was, uh, "Why are you still doing this?" And I quite honestly said, "I don't know who I would be." if I wasn't doing this. And it's what I've done all my life. And it's, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I don't play golf. Uh, <laughs> I can't imagine. Do you watch a lot of TV? Not very much, no. Uh, it's, uh, uh, I, we used to like to go to movies until the movies got pretty dull. And uh, they've gotten loud and exciting looking, but otherwise dull. Right, uh, oh yeah. So, uh, so it's, uh, books started out being the most important thing in my life, and uh, I think I'll go out with books still being to that final day the most important thing in my life. So, other than people, I know. Do you, you get to read other people's books at all? Oh, yeah. I, I, I'd say the last 10 years I've been reading more research and a little less fiction than I used to. I recently had to take a break for a week, and I don't take breaks, but I was recuperating a little. And I, uh, I decided I'd go back and read John D. MacDonald to see if I still love John D. MacDonald after not having reread them in probably 25 years. And I read five in a week, and every one of them I still loved. So and that I found interesting, to go back to things that shape you 
as a writer when you were young and see if you still think they would. And generally, yeah, I still think they would. Once in a while, something's a disappointment, but not often. We did not even get to talk about Nina and John, the main characters in this book, who I really enjoy. And I was worried all book about John. I'm like, please don't let anything happen to John. <laughs> you never know with books nowadays. They, they like to shock you in killing characters off. You never know what's coming next. I've read books where the, the character I love the most is gone, and you just you feel bereft. Uh, sometimes there is... Uh, I have... God knows, in certain books, I've killed off somebody. But uh, readers tell me they, they, they were breathless when that happened. They couldn't believe it. Uh, but I don't, that's a shock thing. And it's not often legitimate. Uh, uh, killing off a character just to give you a jolt is not something I would uh, ordinarily do. Uh, but you sure come close sometimes. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I come close. Yeah. And of course, in the original Thomas, uh, I took that leap, but that's where I knew that book would go from the opening page. And, uh, uh, so it's, uh, yeah, I, I don't, you'll probably never see, see me kill off a dog. <laughs> yes. Yeah, your love for dogs is quite evident, and it's it's wonderful. It's, I mean, seeing the pictures of you with your dog, and I, I know your dog passed away, and and it was a hard time for you. I'm sorry about that, but it's wonderful to see your love for animals. I, and when isn't it great? <laughs> uh, Elsa, our third golden, is right now on the floor behind me, rolling on oh, her back, wonderful. kicking her legs in here because. Dad's been on the phone too long. I need a belly rub. <laughs> right. And we need to let you go. And I've, I've passed my time. Your, your publicist is probably going to yell at me. But... <laughs> <laughs> No, it's fun. I haven't enjoyed it. I often say you're only as good as the interviewer, and you're good. So I felt that I was coherent. Well, that's because you're a wonderful guy. You really are, and, and you've meant so much to me over the years. I can't even tell you how much this has meant to me. It was even... Anticipating it, I was worried I'd say the wrong thing, and it's been even better than I could even have expected. And I, I must mention the book one more time. After death, it comes out July 18th. It's from Thomas and Mercer, which is a division of Amazon, and I'm sure you can get it on the Amazon site. Is it going to be available in bookstores? Uh, some bookstores, yes. The thing I like about uh, mainly it's by by you know order online. Uh, but one thing I love about Thomas and Mercer, they make beautiful books. Uh, they do decorative end papers. They, they decorate the boards. Uh, they do artwork for the part breaks. Uh, they, they make a, the binding is, is stronger than... Uh, do you get a say I, as far as what's going to be on the cover? They always throw it, pass it by me for approval, yeah. And, mm. uh, but it's more that as a book collector, I was getting upset that book binding is becoming so bad that I'm reading a novel and it splits right off the spine. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you get none of that with Amazon, uh, with Thomas and Mercer. The books are made to last, and that, as a collector, it really matters to me. That's wonderful. Well, thank you again, and uh, I can't thank you enough, and I will continue to enjoy your books for years. I can't wait for to read the next one. And this has been David's Book Talk, and we will talk to you next time. Okay. You have just enjoyed the podcast of David's Book Talk, brought to you by your host, book lover, David English. 
please visit us at davidbooktalk.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and subscribe to our podcast. We want to hear from you, and we don't want you to miss our upcoming shows with top authors like Mary Higgins Clark, Patricia Cornwell, Lisa Scottolini, Jackie Collins, Nelson DeMille, Michael Connolly, Sue Grafton, Steve Martini, Dale Brown, David Baldacci.